if you're in the humanities, the world is running under your feet. Your life is um, created by the STEM, science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, and either math or medicine. And then on the scientist side, you know, they could be, they could feel, oh my gosh, you know, the people think that we're nerds or that we're dry people or that we only see things as numbers as if it isn't beautiful when you've got an equation that works. I mean, they, they, people don't understand us. And so it's a lack of understanding on each side. But since I've been a science fiction writer, my whole life I've been trying to say, science is actually quite modest in that it doesn't want to tell people what to do or what things mean. So science, do, scientists doing their science well will be quite, um, they won't claim more for science than it is attempting to do, right. which is to explain things. And once, if you clarify that to people in the humanities, and they get over this notion that, oh, scientists have taken over the world, and, they, and when actually they haven't, they just have um, provided an amazingly powerful tools. Welcome, everyone. Here, for your summer listening pleasure, is our episode of Into the Impossible with celebrated science fiction author and UC San Diego alumni, Kim Stanley Robinson. Stan has reached the highest peaks of science fiction writing, winning the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. He's also become an outspoken advocate for environmental preservation and climate change science. And with his recent novels, 2312, New York 2140, and the Ministry for the Future, he's become one of the foremost authors in the newly named subgenre cli-fi, or climate fiction. Stan visited our studio to discuss his first major nonfiction work, his new book, High Sierra, A Love Story. It's a weave of memoir, guidebook, geology tutorial, and historiography. Stan talks to Brian about his motivations for writing the book and his own High Sierra adventures. Your host, Brian Keating, also got a chance to talk about one of his favorite subjects, Galileo. They discuss Stan's imaginative 2009 science fiction work, Galileo's Dream, and some lessons from the great maestro that Kim Stanley Robinson himself took to heart. Please keep Into the Impossible in your feeds by subscribing and following. To see the video version of this lively interview, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's DR Brian Keating, and subscribe there too. Please let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one from Audible. From Brooklyn Bookworm. Brian's podcast and YouTube channel are great fun for the layman to be introduced to fascinating insights, exhilarating theories, and mind-expanding ideas. Brian has a knack for metaphor to help explain highly complicated concepts into much easier to digest ideas. And now, let us help you plan your summer outdoor adventure with Kim Stanley Robinson, discussing his new book, High Sierra, a love story on Into the Impossible. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to what promises to be an out-of-this-world adventure with a hometown hero, a favorite son of UCSD and California in general, but really of, of Earth and Mars fame, and that's Kim Stanley Robinson, Stan as we know him here renowned science fiction author but also non-fiction author and today we're talking about two of his books that have had an incredible impact on me 
and uh, just my thought process, including my hero, Galileo Galilei, who uh, was really, the last time we were together for an official event of any kind was in 2012, I think it was. Uh, Maybe it was 2014. And it was commemorating the 400th anniversary of Galileo or the 400th anniversary of the telescope, I believe it was. We'll put some B-roll in and we'll show that here. So you and I and Mario Biagioli, who's a Mm -hmm. professor, now he's at uh, UCLA. He was at Davis at the time where you spend a lot of time and uh, we did a birthday party for Galileo uh, and in the back of my mind it was in February which Galileo's birthday is the day after Valentine's Day February 15th and I knew that a month later we'd be announcing to the great fanfare that we had discovered waves of gravity percolating through the universe courtesy of a refracting telescope just like the one that Galileo uh, utilized to peer into the heavens but I couldn't make that known so I was keeping a deep secret while we were speaking but we did a wonderful event together and you're back on campus to do more events you've been uh, so prolific Uh, we're going to talk about Galileo's dream which really is you know probably my my favorite science fiction book fantasy fan fiction I don't know how you think of it but that's the way I think about it. Um, 20 hours of goodness that I've listened to multiple times. Uh, and we're also going to be talking about something that's also near and dear to my heart, which is uh, which is the subject of your latest book, which is uh, about the Sierra Nevada mountain range, which is not far from here. And I didn't realize how much time you spent there, including time when you're spending time here. So first of all, Stan, welcome to UCSD. Welcome back. Welcome home. Uh, we love having you here, and you're so gracious with your time to, to spend some time with us. We have questions from the audience. We have questions from me and and so forth. But first of all, I wanted to ask you, what drove you, you know, I mean, predominantly you're known as a science fiction writer of the highest magnitude, Hugo, Nebula, all the awards you could win, right? Um, What drove you to write a nonfiction book about the Sierra Nevada mountain range? Well, I've wanted to for decades, but I am a science fiction novelist, and I had um, novels to write, contracts to fulfill, so it kind of just sat there in the back of my mind, and it was also... um, something to think about when I was hiking because hiking is an all-day thing the hours pass you got time to think it is um, you uh, it's a double consciousness maybe I mean it's a space that demands your attention and gets your attention it's a beautiful space to walk in the, the high Sierra but also there's time especially on trail to ponder you know how would you write this down in sentences which is something that always uh, comes to me and I gotta say, um, before I forget, thank you so much for mentioning Galileo's Dream. It's one of my favorite of my own novels. I love it because I love Galileo, and that was an opportunity. And it, since then, I've been on a roll, um, partly contractual, partly life situation, partly a wonderful editor, Tim Holman, who platformed me. And that's now seven novels back, and it it's... Um, I think it's a little lost in the shuffle of my career compared to my other novels since. And the people who like Galileo or think of it as a historical novel, well, it's got some pretty weird yeah. chapters. <laughs> it does. The people who think of it as a science fiction novel, there's an awful lot of detail about Galileo's people and quantum his life. entanglement. Yeah, uh, and his life in in Florence and Pisa and in Rome. Mm-hmm. So if you're a science fiction fan, it's too historical. If you're a historical fan, it's too science fictional. So maybe that's one explanation for it, or just. Who well, you never know, mm-hmm. but I'm very happy that you like that book because I like it a lot too. Because he, here's what he taught me: I was feeling low, I was feeling thrashed. I had finished a novel, a trilogy set in Washington D.C., and it had kicked my ass. And I was thinking, maybe I'm done. 
And then I started working on Galileo. I moved and started writing outdoors. That was important. Hmm. But more important was Galileo. I realized that guy, he went through a lot of hard stuff. Physical ailments, including going blind, um, the Pope putting him under house arrest and almost burning him at the stake, his daughter dying young when he was still alive. These are, um, uh, it's as, that's as difficult as life gets in terms mm-hmm. of throwing hard things at you. And all he did was work more. He just worked harder. And um, they, his famous book, The Dialogo, is um, um, uh, justly famous, but the one he wrote at the end of his life... The Discourse. Uh, the Discorsi, yeah, is amazing, simply amazing. And, and so, you know, everything that he ever thought for 40 years put into one book. And th- at that point, I felt a little embarrassed for myself, mm-hmm. or a little ashamed of myself, thinking, you know, you think you have it hard. So just start working. And I started working, and I realized he had the secret that actually my low point was basically probably from spending too much time indoors mm-hmm. and getting bored with sitting at a laptop indoors. When I moved outdoors, I was enjoying writing again. I had the good editor. So Galileo taught me some really important lessons. And and people don't really realize, so I had the honor to, because of the University of California Press, owns the rights to the definitive translation by Stillman Drake of the Dialogo, I had the honor of performing and creating the very first audiobook ever by Galileo, which is the Dialogo, read by uh, my friend uh, Carlo Ravelli and oh. another friend, Italian friend, Lucio Picciarillo. Cool. Uh, so we play it in actual performance, so we act it out in this audiobook. Wh- which one were you? Uh, so I was, uh, I am... Don't tell uh, me you were simplicity. No, no, no. My, my <laughs> Fred, Carlo is, of course, Alviati. Yeah. I am uh, Sagredo, and then there's uh, Simplicio, uh, the, the, the Pope's character, reputedly. <laughs> but the thing that kind of does remind me of, of, of Galileo when I read your writing is there's a poetry. There are sections of Galileo's dream where you describe, there's not a spoil. I don't think you can spoil, correct me if I'm wrong. Can you spoil a book that's 12 years old or no, whatever? No, no, no. Talk, the very right. last page could be discussed. So, but I, which I won't. But there are passages where you describe Galileo visiting the moons of, of Jupiter and you describe the rich ochres, the tans, the purples, and it, it's a page, but it's 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 rapturous. And I listen to the audio. I love hearing your voice, and the, the narrator of that book is a is a wonderful narrator. Absolutely. I wish I could have gotten him for some of my books uh, <laughs> instead of me. But but when you have this eye, it reminds me of Galileo. There are passages in the Dialogo which are the deepest poetry. He speaks at sometimes, and he's of course speaking with some false humility because he had a healthy ego, as I want to get into as a great scientist, a great writer. Mm-hmm. I think you need a little bit of a swagger to do good, to do greatness, and balance that with humility. But he said in the final passage, he said, I have not meant to travel roads never trodden, but merely to open a portal to vistas such that other travelers, much more perspicacious than me, will be able to unveil secrets which I can only dimly grasp. But he has just this beautiful way of writing, evocative. He talks about the sun with all those planets revolving independent upon. Of course, that's what he was trying to prove, which he didn't successfully do in that book. But he says, still finds time to ripen a bunch of grapes on the vine. It's just it's just amazing. And I think about your writing in this new book um, uh, this, the, about the High Sierras. You have this 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 real poetic sense of attention to detail, which I'm wondering, is that born of a scientific curiosity? Not unlike Galileo's. Where does that come from, the attention to detail that you're known for? Well, I wonder, certainly most of the scientists I've known, they're fascinated by what they're studying. So it's not 
just a job. <laughs> it's a form of devotional practice. In other words, you're, you're, the, the pain of attention is a kind of a worship of reality. And Galileo was very much in that mode. The, the world was kind of a miracle to him, filled with mysteries, and some of his theories were wrong. I mean, the tides vexed him. Without gravity, without calculus, he was uh, constantly at the edge of his own understanding and super curious. So he's paying attention and throwing theories out there. And he was a beautiful stylist. Um, his, I'm told by Mario, since I don't read Italian, but that, you know, along with uh, Machiavelli and Dante, they sort of turned the Florence, the Florentine di um, uh, dialect into classical Italian, high Italian, because of their powers as writers. That just became the norm for written Italian when there were so many dialects at the time. Well, it makes sense to me reading him in English. Um, he's vivid, he cuts to the chase. There was a tradition in his time of debates after dinner, you know, mm -hmm. because it was a patronage system and you were entertaining the Duke or the Medici's Count, or whatever. the Medici's or the, any, or the, or the, the, the elected, well, whatever Senate, they were, the, the Doge, Senate, yeah. And, yeah, in <laughs> Venice. So two people would go at it and have a debate, and, a uh, God, you would have lost to Galileo. Okay. <laughs> exactly. He did have a healthy ego, because he knew he was smarter than almost anybody alive in his time, and I had such pleasure throwing him into weird situations, you know, like the, the year 3000. right? <laughs> yeah, well, they'll but, also happen, the science, yeah. but, but right. going into the year 3000, if you threw that at Galileo, he would be doing his best to comprehend it. And when and one of my future characters says to him, you know, well, you know, of course you can't know everything um, that there is to know. And he's like, why not? I, I know everything there is to know in my time. How is the year 3000 any different? Hmm. And um, a thoroughgoing pleasure to contemplate. And, and Mario Biagioli kept telling me, do not romanticize this guy. He was a real son of a bitch. He, mm. was, a, uh, he was a schemer and a grasper. He, there was no such thing as intellectual property rights. He had to fight and scheme. And I mean, he, 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 had, uh, he wasn't unscrupulous by, uh, by any means. He no. had scruples and, and values. But but he was t had to be tough. Yeah, to, Mario so. points out he concealed how the telescope was perfected by him, not invented. It was a form of you know property and trademark investment yeah. for his own safety, as you point out. He had all these people dependent on him, right? He, yeah, that's right. And he and when he had his that first book about the moon published, he put the actual statistics last in a kind of a supplement so that he couldn't be ripped off before the rest of the book came out. <laughs> it was a, a a smart man in a difficult time, and um, it it's a nice to think. I mean, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I am an English major and a novelist. So what are novels about? These are long, complicated stories. It might not even be a major quality of my novelizing that I like being in the Sierras and attending to that world. I was just reminded of this an hour ago. I walked down to Black Speech and back. Well, <laughs> I spent um, a lot of my youth as a as an undergraduate at UCSD down there at that beach. and. Um, it, it, it sort of forces you to pay attention, and the, especially being in the water and, and swimming and making sure you don't drown. Right, you talk about almost succumbing to the tide, the currents here. Yeah, yeah. I have three near-drowning events in my um, childhood and youth, one at Corona del Mar, one at Newport Beach, and one right down right. at Loria Shores, which is a very simple... Placid, yeah. And, uh, yes. Most of the time. <laughs> but, yeah, I blew it. I, it was a stupid mistake when I was uh, young and overconfident. And I must say, the waves break much further offshore 
down here than they do in Orange County. So mm-hmm. it was a simple perceptual error. I said, oh, the waves aren't very big. And when I got out there, they were. And I got thrashed. Um, the water was cold. Whatever. I love it. And so, of course, the interesting thing is, can you put this into sentences where other people can kind of imagine it? Mm-hmm. So I can almost grasp, you know, writing nonfiction books as I've done now twice. Um but the, the the fictional world, it's it's a mystery to me. It seems like such a different skill set. It's like you're, one's a jujitsu master and one's like a chef. But I know there must be commonalities between the processes. But I wonder, can you talk us through your your what is your daily? You're in it. You have a contract. You're working on a new book. It's a fictional book. Yeah. Does your daily routine does it differ from nonfiction to fiction? A and what is it in, in any case? What is your daily? What is your operating routine? There are a lot of young men who listen, young women too, that listen to the podcast. What is your routine to achieve, you know, to get into a flow still? What do you do? Well, it's been, I've only written one nonfiction book, right. except for my um, PhD thesis, which wasn't a real, well, it was, but in any case, it's always been fiction. And my mm-hmm. routine is very simple. I treat it like work. I don't wait for inspiration to strike. You can't do that with novels. Mm-hmm. So I get up, I have breakfast, the family would go off to school and to work. I would be there, I would sit down, I would write from after breakfast to um, lunch, and then maybe write again in the afternoon. At first draft, maybe not. Um, if I was revising, I would write a, as long as I was awake. And many a day, I would actually, after breakfast, go out to the garden. This is very Galileo. He did this too. Yeah. And I would pull weeds and garden for about an hour, get my hands dirty, think things over, like what am I going to write today, and kind of ponder what the scene needed in some very general sense, because it never comes sharp until you're writing the sentences themselves, and then the scene actually happens by some strange moment where I don't want to be mystical about it, but I'm not fully there (laughs) self-making decisions. It's more like... Ah, yes, that it must have been this way because that's the only, that's a combination of the most interesting and the most believable at the same time. So let's write that down and see what it looks like. So a first draft and then I go off and I usually would go for a run or go swim a workout or go play frisbee golf, do something athletic because sitting on my butt is not really my thing dip, despite my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and then revision, as I would say, I, I, I can revise as long as I'm awake and also but for the afternoons, research, doing science fiction, especially as an English major, I'd write a scene and then I'd say to myself, if this scene was going to be really good, I would have to know more. I'd have to know X, Y, and Z, but it was specific to the scene. So my research was reiterative and supportive and was expressed in between the first draft and the subsequent drafts. Mm -hmm. So write a scene, try it out, realize what you would need to know to make it better, find that stuff out, try it again and fit in the new information and a lot of times the research that I did subsequent to the first draft would change the story itself considerably Hmm. because in the research I would learn more that that actually told me you can't even do that or that's wrong let's it's better to do it right because it'll be more interesting so it's been a reiterative process and um well, I was taking care of my kids because they're grown up now, but when they were young and I was Mr. Mom, I would work Monday through Friday and Saturdays and Sundays I would fool around with the family and do chores. <laughs> Once they grew up enough, I just started working seven days a week and I got into streaks. Like I, one time I worked 220 days in a row. And it's a streak sort of like Cal Ripken where 
occasionally I would be going to bed and realize I hadn't written that day and I'd write one paragraph to keep the streak alive. Right. But um, it's good for writers to keep a streak where every day you don't get to decide you're going to write that day. You yeah. don't know what you're going to write, but you're going to write something. And that way you have seven-fifths more work done in every week than if you take your weekends off. Yeah, I think Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art says something like, I only write when I'm inspired, but fortunately inspiration strikes every morning at 9 a.m. <laughs> well, sometimes it doesn't. But, um, it, you Meaning can, that he has to put his butt in a chair. Yes. Yeah, you exactly. flog it a little, and certainly until your butt's in a chair, you're not going to be inspired. Uh, I, I, I in the COVID period, and since Ministry for the Future is done, and, and, and also since the High Sierra was done, I have been doing these little poems, like Chinese landscape poems, or mm. um, Chinese widows' Buddhist dailies. They're very small poems. They're more like diary entries made into a poem. There, I actually wait for inspiration. Something happens, and I think, oh, that would make a good little poem. Hold on to that thought. So it's completely different than... So the physics I can't resist, but so I did teach a class, the first ever combination class taught in partnership between literature, English literature, and physics with our mutual friend Ray Armantrout, winner of the Pulitzer oh, Prize. Good old man. Uh, so yeah. she is uh, hopefully listening, and Ray, I love you, I miss you. Uh, but we used to debate, and I always put up on the first day of class, I put up this following quote by Dirac, which I'll try to resuscitate, the famous physicist Nobel laureate came up with the concept of antimatter and his construction of the relativistic theory of quantum mechanics, leading to what's called the positron mm. uh, and he said uh, he was talking about and he was rumored to be um, very parsimonious with his language in fact his brother-in-law said something Paul never uses two words when none will do <laughs> <laughs> so uh, he said the following he said in physics we, ex we try to express the richness of the physical universe in the fewest possible terms or with the small you know most economical amount of language but in poetry, it's the opposite. And Feynman, of course, had these ridicules of, of the poet's process. He said, why is it that, you know, if I speak about Jupiter as being made of methane and, and uh, hydrocarbons and so forth, that I'm somehow less well regarded than you know Walt Whitman waxing rhapsodically about the loss of the night sky to numbers why is there this you know kind of uh, hostility between the physical sciences perhaps or the the hard sciences and and maybe the the humanities do you perceive that or is well, it anything legitimate? I know what he's talking about and yes it exists as a thing and somewhat in the minds on both sides yeah. I mean uh, it's the CP snow two cultures division and I gotta say, Ray Armentrout is an example of a true poet in that she has a gift, and this is a hard thing to describe, and I think it has to do with a sense of rhythm. Because um, as a prose writer, I try to be as precise as a poet, as expressive as a poet, but thoughts in rhythm, syllables that, um, between the weak syllables and the strong syllables, and also the end stops of switching to the next line at a unexpected moment that nevertheless um, um, uh, um, makes bold or prominent one thought or another or just gives you a little internal surprise. Whatever a poet is doing, she has a gift for it. Yeah. And I don't have that gift, but I, uh, I can, I can, under, I can s know it when I see it as a reader. Right. Uh, and as for the two culture split, what are you going to do? I'm an English major from UCSD, and Patrick Ledden used to start his non-Euclidean geometry uh, classes, which I took from him and loved him, with um, quotes from James Joyce. He ran the <laughs> Joyce workshop here for a while, the, a seminar on Joyce. And he, when he did chalkboards, you know, the non-Euclidean, yeah. uh, the, the sphere with the 
um, the uh, hyperbolics and the line, yeah, the lines mm-hmm. at infinity, and where, and so mm-hmm. he would draw these perfect circles on the chalkboard. He was making works of art mm-hmm. and quoting Joyce and teaching us non-Euclidean geometry, which is pretty strange mm-hmm. stuff um, and, and interesting in many ways. And he made it quite clear in ways that I now look back on with some surprise. The split isn't necessary. It, and I wonder if it's a little bit of insecurity on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, in that, if you're in the humanities, the world is running under your feet. Your life is um, created by science and t- technology, by the STEM, science, technology, mm-hmm. engineering, and either math or medicine. Um, and then on the scientist side, you know, they could be, they could feel, oh my gosh, you know, the people think that we're nerds or that we're dry people or that we only see things as numbers as if it isn't beautiful when you've got an equation that works. I mean, they, uh, people don't understand us. And so it's a lack of understanding on each side. But since I've been a science fiction writer, my whole life I've been trying to say they are um, shared enterprises, or they're both equally valuable, even though they are quite different. I've been trying to explain to the humanities, mm, science is actually quite modest in that it doesn't want to tell people what to do or what things mean. It's how things work, how we might manipulate them, um, explanations of processes, but not philosophy in the sense of meaning and not uh, ethics and not politics. Right. So science, do, scientists doing their science well will be quite, um, they won't claim more for science than it is attempting to do, right. which is to explain things. And once, if you clarify that to people in the humanities, and they get over this notion that, oh, scientists have taken over the world, and, they, and when actually they haven't, they just have um, provided an amazingly powerful tools. So, uh, you know, you can go on forever on this uh, science and art split, but when you're a science fiction writer and it's like, oh, come on, you know, let's let's um, get over that and talk more about what we can do together to uh, illuminate things and go forward. Yeah, it's like uh, the scientist uh, Robert Wilson, I think was one of the uh, original NSF directors or something in government in the 50s and 60s, and some congressman asked, oh, what, Mr. Wilson, what will this new fangled particle accelerator do, you know, for the defense of the country? And, and he said, well, it'll make it worth defending. But I always invert that and say, well, it's really, you know, the humanities that need protection, and but there also should be the highest form of expression. As you described, Professor Ledden, we have lectures named after yeah, to this day. Yeah. Um, you know, I think of what is the purpose of a scholar? You know, what 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 good do we do? And it's it's like there's a tremendous amount of high bar that is in my mind what it means to be a scholar, but to to have this diversity of curiosity means you shouldn't just do physics and you should that's why the course was called uh, by the way i didn't tell you this the, the course was called poetry for physicists oh yeah uh, instead of physics for poets very, right very so i had always wanted to do that and one day i got an email you know i was you get these emails i'm sure you know or stan i'd love to take you out to coffee or you know pick your brain and like i can get my own coffee thanks very much and she, she's writing to me i'd love to take you out to coffee and you know, i'm in camp oh by the way i won the pulitzer prize last year but the undelete you know like oh let me take this just not a normal person who asks you out for a cup of coffee yeah. and she had this incredibly discursive curiosity about cosmology and entanglement she wrote a poem which won one of the best poems american poems of 2012 and it's inspired by me and you can hear it on uh, on audible and elsewhere 
Just a quick pause to ask you for a small favor while my thumb is occupied with old Albert on it. Yours is presumably freed up to leave a thumbs up on this video. It really helps me a lot with the good old fashioned YouTube algorithm. Thanks a lot. Now back to the video. But when we think about a novel, the thing that's always surprised me, nonfiction, you kind of know the story. I mean, yes, you come in and media rays, you don't exactly know perhaps what happened before the Big Bang in my case or something like that. But I, I know the story I'm trying to tell. Uh, but with a novel, especially like a trilogy or multi-series, multi-part series, do you have to know, like someone who's just, obviously I'm deeply closeted and I want to write a novel someday. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell me, yeah. Stan, how, like, what do I need? What's the prerequisite? How do you know when you have enough? Like, what, what do you, what do you need to go on to start? Obviously you can start any time. What do you, what's your theoretical minimum? The idea itself. Um, um, Including the resolution? like the, yeah, the Well, very often, yes. The mm. resolution or where I'm headed. Well, the idea itself. Mm. Um, let's see if we can terraform Mars in 200 years. That has its resolution. At the end, you say yes. You don't say no. Right. <laughs> no is likelier now. But um, uh, what if you're like, we're not going to make it to the stars that this is a false dream that humanity's going to the stars because of biological constraints and, and physics biological so then oh how would you how would you show that in a novel well let's do the most likely thing a multi-generational starship and then we'll show the problems that are unsolvable given the distances involved and then we'll put them in a perilous state and actually i didn't quite know my answer to that one which is my novel aurora Ministry for the Future, what's the best case scenario for the next 30 years that you could still believe in after I described it to you? So um, these, ki these are ideas. The, um, some of them are a little crazier. Um, Galileo, when he's looking through his telescope and he sees the moons of Jupiter, what if he found himself there, like mm -hmm. by some kind of um, matter transfer or uh, quantum entanglement, and he's standing on the moons of Jupiter? Well, that's a pretty crazy notion. It's not dissimilar to A Voyage to Arcturus by mm -hmm. David Lindsay, a novel from the 20s, quite bizarre. So I'm not saying it's a particularly original idea, but once it came to me, I kept pondering and itching at it. And I, I have to say, that's a strange idea. Um, I, I could go through all of them. Uh, what was it like for the people who painted the Chauvet Caves 32,000 years ago, right. uh, living in the Ice Age in, in uh, the middle of Europe? What was that like? Well, now that's a tough uh, speculation <laughs> uh, and an interesting thing to try. Um, and what if sea level was 50 feet higher and you were living in Manhattan? So these are, these are simply the ideas, and then I would pursue from there. Have you gotten more or less optimistic, pessimistic about humanity's future on Mars or interplanetary desires as Elon has, has kind of proposed? Well, interplanetary, I'm, I'm gung-ho for the solar system. I think um, this NASA slogan, space science is an Earth science, I totally believe it. And I, I think a robust space program is, is um, very good for us, for, for the health of this planet, um, the bio, biosphere health. Um, I love NASA and I love the space program. I love SpaceX. Um, not so sure about Elon himself these days, just because of his politics, um, which I don't like now. But um, I think it's like Antarctica. And so, you know, the South Pole base, there's going to be one of those on Mars. And people at that point, they won't care. They won't give a damn. It'll be exactly like, oh, my God, there's people at South Pole right now. How amazing. And 95 out of 100 people you say that to, you're like, well, so what? <laughs> you know, it's not interesting. Whereas we know it's interesting. And 
here's a this comes from Oliver Morton, who's the environmental editor at um, The Economist and a good writer of nonfiction books. He says humans are interested in the place that we ha- can't quite get to yet, but we hope that we could, maybe through technological achievements or through courage or through trying repeatedly and doing stupid things. So, okay, for a long time it was the North Pole. Then we got there, and indeed, Amundsen was on his way to the North Pole when he heard the news that someone had got there, and he just told his crew, sorry, we're going south. Flip a Yui. Which right, a, no. What a crazy <laughs> thing that is in terms of logistics and everything else, but that's what he did. And he won. So then the South Pole, then Everest, and then after that, people are kind of at loose ends, and going to the moon was as, uh, shocking. But it was interesting. The moment we got to the moon, it wasn't interesting anymore. Mm-hmm. And so Oliver speculates, and I bet he's right, that when we get to Mars, it'll be a nine days wonder and everybody will freak out. The astronauts will come back home. It is not, it should not be a, a dead end destination. You think it's in the Elon won't die on Mars as he's reputed to want? I mean, as Martin Rees says he'll die on impact, potentially. Yeah, not on impact. But he might, but um, it would be like saying, I'm going to check into a Motel 6 for the rest of my life, and uh, maybe even a Motel 6 underground for the rest of my life. How cool is that? <laughs> and it's just not cool. You know, I mean, even the people who love the South Pole Station or McMurdo, yeah. they do not say, I'm never coming back. I love this so much, no. I'm going to live there. I mean, the record is about 12 years uh, but with a three-month break in New Zealand, exactly. traveling about exactly. the South Island. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. Those, those Antarcticans, <laughs> they count their time down there by months. That's oh, right. yeah, how, how long have you been in Antarctica? 54 months. And you're thinking, that's a little weird to that's count it that way. But, but they're taking the, advantage of the, um, the coming back, and they're, they're proud of how much time they spend in Antarctica, but absolutely. they always come back to the world, as they call it. Yeah, from the ice to the world. And and yeah. you've been there, and we were talking about uh, this picture. Where did I put it up there? Yeah. Uh, maybe it's in the frame. Maybe it's not. Yeah, it is. The Dry Valley. So you, you've been to Antarctica. I've spent only time really at the South Pole and at McMurdo Station. But I greatly prefer McMurdo because there's more people. There's soft serve ice cream on demand. And you can tell I like that. Uh, but uh, yep. how realistic is it? Past... Um, I can't call him a graduate of UCSD, but past uh, attendee of UCSD, Andy Weir, uh, has been a guest on the podcast. Uh, very wonderful. Um, obviously, has a deep connection to the planet Mars, as do yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, he never graduated, but uh, he's still welcome to send his uh, donations to UCSD. We will take them, Andy, as I told you last time. Um, it was interesting. He was very vulnerable about his time, and, and uh, he, he answered some of the questions about kind of existential meaning that I'll get to at the very end of this conversation a little bit with you, um, if you continue to be as gracious as I know you are to answer them. But he talked about, really, the moon even is... It's not a dead end, but in his uh, in his novel Artemis, after which NASA's new space program is named, no, I don't think it's named after, but yeah. uh, but he claims the real only economic reason to go to uh, to go to the moon is for tourist purposes. Yes. Well, uh, are you you know in the same camp when it comes to the moon? And what about with Mars exploration? I am in the same camp, and I, I met Andy a couple of times at science fiction events and enjoyed those meetings a lot. Um, the moon, I wrote a moon novel called Red Moon. It was the one right before Ministry for the Future. And mm-hmm. uh, I would say that it's, um, it, um, the moon is too small to be interesting and China is too big to be comprehensible. And putting the two together, I had a novel about Chinese taking over the South Pole of the moon, mm-hmm. which I think could happen. Um, but nevertheless, um, it was hard to find a heroic story or any economic reason to be there. Uh, but tourism, and my... 
addition to tourism on the moon is, um, I think, original to me, and it comes out of Galileo. Hmm. He noticed that the moon was um, shifting a little bit, uh, li libation or libration? Mm -hmm. Libration. Yeah. Libration. Mm -hmm. And he said it was like a man shaving, turning his head back and forth to see <laughs> the sides for shaving. Mm -hmm. And so if you were, and even the poles will work with this, and the poles will have water, but along the, the two limbs that we see, if you were put it to a hotel there, then the earth would rise and go down on a like two-week basis. It would come over the horizon, it would be up in the low in the sky, and then it would go back down again. It's almost the only thing you'd see, because yeah. everywhere else on the moon, you're going to be seeing the stars fixed in position. Right. And people had, haven't really thought too much. Even the earth would be fixed in position and going through its daily cycle right. of, of shade and dark, mm -hmm. which would be interesting. Yeah. But to have it come up and down also. So yes, the moon... A dead end, and, and the so-called economic reasons are simply, I'm going to say, ridiculous. The helium-3, the, the, its quantities in the Astronomy. Surface, and, astronomy. And, and, well, astronomy, cool. Oh, no. It's, yeah. it's practical, but yeah, it's not an economic driver. I mean, look at American no, astronomy. No, it's, it's, it's an expense. <laughs> right. Uh, you go to the other side or whatever you want to mm -hmm. do. It's like the South Pole itself. It's, exactly. uh, so if people say we're going up there in order to make money, mm -hmm. you've got to just laugh at them. Uh, and... I think tourists, um, there probably shouldn't be people rich enough to be able to afford to go to the moon as a tourist. But on the other hand, if we get really um, um, these SpaceX reusable rockets and if it becomes um, not grotesquely expensive, like the people have been going up into low Earth orbit for $20 million, I mean, that's probably a sign they've got too much money and should be taxed out of it. Um, so tourism, that's not good either. Mm -hmm. Now, Mars is different because it's a planet, and once we set up a scientific base there and astronauts begin to go there, spend a season, come back in the following season, they'll have taken on a heavy dose of radiation, as you know, and they'll have had the time of their lives, and they'll come back and they'll... But also, same with the moon. We don't know what that low gravity is going to do. I mean, we have suspicions. It's not good for you. Right. Microgravity is really bad for you. Mm -hmm. Maybe 37% would be okay. Maybe 16%, maybe. We don't know. Yeah. Um, it'll be experiments that astronauts will be willing to take because it would be so cool. The thrill. Yeah, mm -hmm. the thrill of it. Yeah, it might be one of our uh, also illustrious alumna, Jessica Mayer, who is a graduate of Scripps Institutional Astronomy. I'm kind of hoping that she'll be the first woman on the moon because uh, I got to interview her twice, once while she was in the ISS floating above my head. Wow. Um, let's shift gears to things that Galileo noted about the, the similarity between the Earth and the moon. Those are mountains. Oh, yeah. uh, the mm -hmm. Sierra, it's a love story. And yeah. you tell it, and there are characters in it. I don't want to spoil some of the some of the, but it is dedicated to a friend. Uh, talk about Terry. Talk about your 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 friend who's uh, yeah not with us. What yeah. did he? Did you did you know you knew him from your UCSD days? Or I knew him from sixth grade <laughs> in, up in Orange County. We were friends together, close friends from seventh grade on. In, uh, in sixth grade, he was in a different class and was just a formidable opponent on the sports fields because they played class against class. Uh, and then in seventh grade, we became good buddies, and we were ever since. Uh, up to a certain point. Um, and I, I want to say parenthetically that Galileo was so cool in that being the geometrician that he was that he, when he saw there were mountains on the moon, he made a pretty damn good calculation Estimate of how tall they were by, and had the moon sized also. Right. Um, impressive as hell, that man. Um, but my friend Terry was also impressive. He was a chemistry major here at UC San Diego. We roomed together. 
our senior year up in Del Mar, and he went up to the Sierras with another UCSD friend, Daryl Bonin, and came back down and said to me and Joe Holds, who I just talked to yes mm-hmm. day before yesterday on his birthday, he's out in Hawaii, uh, Joe and Terry and I went up to the Sierras together under Terry's uh, um, encouragement. He said, look, we got to go up there. It's great. Let's go to Desolation. It's such a fantastic name. It must be the best place up there. And uh, for years, for decades, this was a pattern. Go to the Sierras with Terry, learn. He was a creative guy. He wanted to make gear lighter. He didn't trust the commercial companies. He thought their products were mostly crap, and, and he was often right. He was way ahead of the curve on ultralight backpacking. And these thru-hikers that go from Mexico to Canada in a single season, he was one of those, mm-hmm. and, it, and it was all his own gear. And the industries, the cottage industries that have come up to serve that community, where uh, they're not just concerned with ounces, but with grams. I mean, they want a backpack oh, yeah. that weighs five pounds plus some food. Yeah, one extra bristle on a toothbrush, and they're, yeah, they're, they're jettisoning. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he was, a, he was like that, mm. just out of a personal drive. And he, he liked to hike, I'm going to say he liked to hike 15 and 20 miles a day. That's what made him feel good in the Sierras. And, he, and I'm talking about on trail. And I'm the one that kept insisting, let's get off trail. Let's go see places where nobody else goes. Because he would have been content to tromp trails. And indeed, when this through hiking came into being, he was fond of it. He did it twice. But then he came down with ALS um, and uh, what Lou Gehrig's disease, like what Stephen Hawking said, but many, he's like many people who catch that disease, they're dead within a year. I don't know if there are different um, varieties of it. I don't know why one see, one, some people can persist for, for decades right? decades, and other people, they, they measure your hand strength and they can tell you how many months you have left. And uh, when they found, diagnosed him, he had about six months left. This was back in I don't know, 2018 or 2019. So, and and I, um, you know, before that, what I've been reading about ALS is that it can have mood and cognitive effects before the physical effect, physical effects show up. Whether that's true or not, somehow he got mm, distrustful of uh, almost everybody in his life. So this was a sad thing to see, and it it impacted. Um, the last decade of his life pretty heavily, and it wasn't a happy time for him. But it's important to remember that for decades before that, he was a kind of, uh, I thought of him as a kind of a Thoreau figure, a mount- for sure a mountain guru. He wanted to go up there, he was having fun up there. And in one time I saw a walrus uh, at a zoo where you you know them on land and they're just clumping around right. and then if you see them underwater like penguins are like they're penguins they're right. graceful <laughs> yeah. they are uncontrolled like Michael Phelps yeah yeah exactly well Terry in the Sierras was in his element and down in in uh, in civilization he was not in his element he wasn't comfortable mm. it's just the way it was with him I see the I Sierra as sort of a different incarnation of Abby's desert solitaire in some ways. And there's a phrase that's never left me from that book, which I want to get your reaction to, which is that, you know, you can't live on the ocean. Um, you can't live on the mountains. You'll, you'll fall off or something like that. Mm. But you can live in the desert and you can kind of persist there. And it's a stable environment. How do you react to that? Do you, do you agree with Abby or not? No, it's <laughs> such a desert rat. Um, um, there's a beautiful book by, what is his name? It's called The Desert by a guy who 
had a fever around 1902 and cured it. Doctors told him to go out and live in the desert and oh, cure his fever. It's like Heisenberg's hay fever. Yeah, his name will come to me. Um, but uh, there's only a few books called The Desert, and Abby was like that. These desert rats, they, they love it out there, and they, you know, maybe they're a bit nocturnal, maybe they're a bit uh, don't like it to be cold, although you can be cold in the desert, as oh, you yeah. know. But it isn't um, sustainable. You would have to be one of uh, an indigenous person that really knew that landscape, and then if you were an indigenous person and you knew that landscape, you wouldn't. You'd go to the Owens Valley. You'd go into the rivers. You'd be on on the Cottonwood Rivers in the desert. You wouldn't be out there where it was completely mm. desolated and um, without water because you need to live and have both food and drink. That's right. Now, the High Sierra, it's somewhat similar and somewhat not. Um, there are summer encampments up there that the native Californians went up to every summer. Taboose Pass is one that I write about because I saw it myself. And the reason we know that that was a, a summer encampment for hundreds of years is there are obsidian flakes everywhere in that meadow i mean thousands right. of obsidian flakes and so you, you can't get there other than these are not never endemic right. they were brought by humans they were chipped off of blocks and the the chips came from obsidian dome so they mm. only carried them of, i don't know maybe 20 miles 30 miles mm. well obsidian dome is up near mama so maybe 40 miles but in any case they're there up in taboose pass and all over the sierra yeah obsidian flakes so a summer encampment but in the winter you're not going to be up there you go down to the valleys below right and so it is livable, and unless you get on the vertical faces like climbers do, it's not particularly dangerous. But um, I must say, I've often thought about this, food up there, they were probably killing deer with uh, snares or with arrows, and they were probably pulling meadow onions, and also they had such a good supply of acorns and pine nuts, mm -hmm. and, and carry up a backpack full of... Uh, uh, pine nuts ready to eat, or acorns that had already been leached. Ground and rain. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, it was pretty robust, but not the actual local food supplies. Once you get up above about, um, say, 8,000 feet, is uh, relatively minimal. Mm -hmm. um, so a main character in the book is John Muir. And I'm proud to say I am a member of Muir College. We have this college system here at UCSD, as you know, and others may not know, but John Muir is one of them. Now he has a complicated legacy. You and I talked about this at Washington, D.C. when we were yeah. there. Yeah. I should also mention that you're gracious enough to participate in events for the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, of which I'm honored to be the associate director of, along with Eric Veery, um, Patrick Coleman, Stuart Volkow, and others. Uh, but you have, um, you and I just chat in the car uh, on your way, uh, on our both mutual way to the Amtrak station after Michio Kaku and others won the um, and you spoke as well yeah. at the uh, Clark Foundation Awards that was uh, fun a couple of years ago yep. um, and, and that was a great time but you and I talked about Muir and sort of some of the complicated aspects of his of his life and, and, and his career I love the portrayal and I love the quotes that you use you do talk about it in the book famous one of course I found by going out I was really going in yeah. um, what does Muir mean to you and what do you say to those who say his, his legacy has been tarnished and compromised in some sense yeah well I conceive of myself as a, his defense attorney because that is a that is a calumny he has been mischaracterized um, and uh, this was a kind of a clickbait gotcha moment a yeah. cancel culture moment of 2020 
um, uh, the executive director of the Sierra Club cravenly gave into yeah. it and supported it. She with, found it or almost uh, he, he he didn't find you mentioned in the book. I, I yeah, he it, well, he certainly was well involved, but there were men, mostly men in San Francisco who came to him and said, well, you'll help us start a Sierra yeah. Club. And he said, hell yeah. Mm -hmm. Um and the he, leader in 2020. Yes, yeah, so so this is a moment that has passed. I was extremely angry in 2020 because mm -hmm. um, the people who were uh, accusing him of racism, they had not read him. And I've read him, and I mean in full, yeah. even to the point of going to his archives at University of Pacific in Stockton, California, and reading all the unpublished stuff. I needed to be sure. Right. Like, um, to prove a negative is difficult, yeah. as you know, and this yeah. is one of the scientists' big problems. Yeah. So if I say, no, he was not a racist, well, how do you prove a negative? Mm -hmm. And one way to try is to read everything. Yeah. And I have to say, there's a dozen sentences of him, of his, that are obnoxious, um, that are a little ignorant on his part and a little judgy. Um, he was Presbyterian. His dad whipped him through his youth and childhood. He was mm -hmm. kind of PTSD. Um, he didn't like seeing people sitting around during the daytime, and he didn't like people with dirty clothing. It, both of those things he found shocking and sinful. Uh, not that he stayed a Christian, but he had these attitudes beaten into him. Um, but aside from about a dozen sentences, his admiration for Native Californians and Native Americans in general was strong, and he never had much of anything to say about the recently freed slaves of the South. When he was a kid, he hiked all the way down to Florida and saw the shattered South, and he made relatively objective, um, sometimes admiring, admiring comments, sometimes critical comments, sometimes ignorant comments about the black people he met in the South. But once he got to California, he had very little contact with them at all. So if you hunt for these sentences, the new executive director of the Sierra Club, Ben Jealous, whose previous job was at the Same. NAACP, right. Ben Jealous said once, you know, Mirror, sometimes he sounds like a guy writing in the 19th century. And I think that's so well put. Mm -hmm. um, in, there are some sentences that are 19th century sentences that we wouldn't say now. Right, it fell into the 20th century, unfortunately, but right, it is well, what it is. Well, they got pulled, plucked out of the record. Oh, what a bad man. But I want to uh, finish the point by saying, what did Muir actually do? Yeah. Because Audubon had slaves, and even uh, Krober, um, Ursula Le Guin's father, um, he had his name taken off of buildings in uh, Berkeley because he had Ishii's brain sent to the Smithsonian and because he told the federal government that some of the native Californians around the San Francisco Bay did not constitute tribes and that kept them from getting federal listings. And so their lives were impacted by Krober's opinions. Muir never did any of that and the main ac accusation against Muir as to doing stuff was that he encouraged the national park system to kick Native Americans off their land in order to make a pure wilderness. That never happened. That hmm. absolutely did not happen. Hmm. He died before the National Park Service right. was established, but also he never said that to anybody, not to Teddy Roosevelt, not to anybody. He, I mean, when he said everybody should go up to the mountains and get their glad tidings, he was thinking of his white middle class audience right. that were in the cities, but he was certainly 
never said they should get these native Californians out of here to make a better wilderness area. That is simply a lie. Mm-hmm. And now that I've read all of them and seen the context, he actually said once, these native Californians, they live so well in the landscape. Right, he they made them, yeah. Yeah, he did. And he said also, it's clear that they burned this valley floor in order to clear it for to make parkland out of it. So this people who accused him of not even knowing the ecological fire management practices, they're wrong about that too. <laughs> right. So... To I mean, I don't want to go on too long no, about right. this, but Muir, a heroic figure, um, the world's most famous environmentalist, and um, he still is worth valuing because the Sierras are the way they are because he was such a good writer, too. Like mm-hmm. Galileo, he <laughs> could capture the beauty and the sacredness of the outdoor world. Right. He's eminently, uh, eminently quotable as well. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask a couple of final questions and wrap up with my existential used to call it the thrilling three now i call it the final four we'll see how many we can get to i know you've got a a huge event uh, coming up and not too long from now um first though i want to pitch an idea to you uh my nascent entry into science fiction so kim prather is a national uh academy member professor atmospheric chemistry she's closely associated with the idea of atmospheric rivers which Mm. you talk about in your Mm -hmm. book is Pineapple Express is what it used to be branded. Now, now it's kind of revisited. But one of her theories, and sorry, Kim, if you're listening, another Kim, uh, famous mm-hmm. Kim, ACSD yeah. associate. Last night. Um, so one of her theories is that microbes may control the generation and diminution of the atmospheric river phenomena when there's a drought that they do nucleate and they do cause this upwelling and so forth that do enter into the atmosphere providing nucleation sites for precipitation to fall, which then cures the drought, right? Because the atmosphere... So, Here's my pitch to you. It's, yeah. you're, you're you're the uh, you're the book agent, right? Okay. Um, can we turn this into a, a science fiction novel where the microbes are taking over the planet? Maybe add in some Paul Davies, a little shadow biosphere because they're not from Earth, perhaps, but they want to maintain the Earth so that we can get to planet Borkon and then save. Anyway, what do you think? Yay or nay? Do, do the Caligula. Do the thumbs up. Thumbs Holy moly! Go for it. All right. Go for it. Um, I I don't. <laughs> you heard it here uh, first. Yes. I. You need to figure out the plot. And uh, here's what I say: a plot is something goes wrong. That's really the quick definition of a plot. Um, and you don't want to read a novel that doesn't have a plot. That's I, I've had my my butt whipped for trying that, um, and it doesn't work. So uh, what I love about this is I'm right now reading the correspondence between James Lovelock and and Lynn Margulis. Mm -hmm. And it's a funny and interesting um, dialogue between the two of them as they work out this homeostasis or this uh, cybernetic um, uh, feedback loops. And she's the biologist and he's the cyberneticist and all-around space cadet super scientist. Lovelock was really good, although erratic and strange, an independent scholar. But they didn't want to make it um, Mother Earth. They didn't want a personification. They wanted a name for a. It was. It's actually somewhat hard to describe what Gaia is. It's some kind of supraorganism mm-hmm. that is self. Reg, um, not. Well, see all this. Thing, yeah, it's, it's all bit, personified, yeah. there, right? Yeah, so yeah. But homeostatic is a good way to put mm-hmm. it into just um, um, cybernetic terms, um, mm-hmm. but with living elements in it that want to live yeah. and are encouraged by living. So what I love about this idea is. Um, I just think Lovelock and Margulis would love it. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, it gets at least a provisional stamp of approval. All right, Stan, we've reached the sort of end where we transition into questions of existential import. And 
all of these in some way or another are um, tangentially or directly related to quotes of the great Arthur C. Clarke. Did you meet Arthur? Did you? Uh, by phone only. Okay. Yeah. But he had a deep influence on you and yeah. past and upcoming guest, Peter Diamandis, who also sends regards. And oh, yeah. he's a great friend of the Clark Center as well. Um, so Clark would say many things. One of my favorite that I love to drop on my faculty colleagues at a faculty meeting is for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. I, I love to drop that on my department chair from time to time. Um, but he also said uh, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And if you are a subscriber to my mailing list, I call it the magic mailing list because we go through different aspects of what Clark and memories and 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 and, and sort of uh, imaginative concepts but I want to reimagine that question and say mm-hmm. what aspect of humanity is most magical to you what what invention what would you put on an on an obelisk on a monolith you know that could be a time capsule a sentinel for last for billions of years to give us the swagger that we might deserve to say we were here what would you put on such a such a talisman or you know future uh, shard of our existence what, what should humanity be most proud of in your conception oh most proud of oh my god i don't know i mean anesthetics um um heart surgery um medicine in general i think science came out of an um, urge to reduce our suffering and and make us more comfortable in the world mm. uh, less hungry less hurt and how to do that trial and error um, a lot of early scientists were women, the herb women, um, as in my novel Shaman. So I would say medicine right off the bat, okay. because now we're living like I'm living um, extended lifetime as in my Mars novels. I just hit 71, but I, I, it's only medicine that I got past about 65. <laughs> um, I've, I've had my life saved twice by medicine, so I'm particularly sensitive to how lucky we are to have the scientific project with that as its high point. Mm-hmm. Now, I would also say, I was, you talked about Paul Davies, a wonderful writer yes, and thinker. Yes. My God. He's the only person that ever has been able to explain some of the details of quantum mechanics in a way that I followed him. And that's mostly metaphorical and writing ability, mm-hmm. not mathematical, in terms of his ability to explain to a layperson. He's fabulous and a good guy. And he writes about mysticism a lot. And so this is also Pierre de uh, Tilhard de Chardin. You got the lithosphere, the atmosphere, you got the biosphere, and then the nuosphere which was de Chardin's word for the mental, mm. maybe the thoughts of Gaia. The anthrosphere. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it is a human, the neosphere is created by human thinking. Mm. So even the internet as a technological manifestation of the neosphere. Hmm. Or I said once in my Mars books um, that first uh, Mars has a neosphere and then it got an atmosphere and a biosphere because we thought of it first and then did it. Then we instantiated um, it. Yeah, Very here good. it's the reverse on Earth. Right. So that's what I would say, medicine for sure. Okay, another quote from Sir Arthur. Um, when an elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, he is most certainly right. When he says something is impossible, he is very likely wrong. And as you stand, what have you changed your mind on? What, if anything, have you been wrong about? What would you like a mulligan about, if anything, whatsoever? I'm not calling you elderly, by the way. Yeah, no, I would um, like to take all mentions of blockchain out of ministry for the future. (laughs) 
I think it was prescient. Yeah, I think blockchain is bad coding and will be um, a phenomenon of just this decade, and there will be better coding systems later. Okay. So, but that's a trivial thing. Yeah. Um, I, I. That's a good question. I don't know. I, I was at UCSD 50 years ago. I was an undergrad. I was. Um, several things converged in my brain at once and made me who I am. And ever since then, I've been kind of um, bowling along like a bowling ball, enjoying life and seeing the world. Um, I I can't think of things that have um, caused me to change anything major in my thinking mm. since then. But now this is probably an admission of my <laughs> my thinking has been too fixed, <laughs> not that flexible. I'm a creature of habit. And so my habits have been fixed for a long time. Well, as Yogi Berra said, if it ain't broke. Yeah. Well, I should never. I should not have spent so many years indoors. <laughs> That's an accident, especially as a Californians. Um, you can spend um, fifty to a hundred percent more time than you do outdoors just by deciding to. Mm -hmm. And I didn't make that decision until you know about 2006 or so but you might have more skin you know you've got uh, well, remarkably had, smooth uh, i've and, got a bunch of skin cancers chopped out of me so. even still oh yeah. wow oh hell yeah all right last question stan and then i'll let you on your way um and that's the uh the following statement by sir arthur <clears throat> that the only way of determining the limits of the possible is to venture beyond them into the impossible that's how we get the name of this podcast after all i want to ask you um, what advice to 21-year-old Stan here at UCSD, what advice would you give to yourself to give yourself the courage to do as you've done to go into the impossible? Advice to your former self. Well, can I say as an English major and a word person that this is not a good use of language, that <laughs> okay. if you say impossible, you mean impossible. And so, and Clark was bad at this too, but he just came from physics. Um, <laughs> there's not going to be faster than light traveled by human beings. I'll just say that. It's impossible. And uh, uh, you can come back in 500 years and we'll test that out and I'll still be right. And then, but this is one thing that physics is very good at, yep. you know, um, uh, although... You know, we do have dark matter. We, it's not like we understand everything. Things no. are quite mysterious right now. But some things, I think, are impossible. So, um, and also, this whole notion, say that, okay, humanity, like, is destined for the stars, and if we don't make it to the stars, we must have been idiots as a species. Right. We must have failed. But if you set yourself an impossible goal, and then you fail, then you've just some. The goal was stupid. Or it could be like, you know, so it says, oh, I'm, I'm superior to you, Stan, because I have a nicer phone than you. You know who's the most powerful people on Earth? They don't even have phones. Someone else has a phone for them, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a false dichotomy. I think. It is indeed. And and these the use of language, we have all these words that are um, getting squished out of their um, natural uh, element and being overused and pressured to the point where they blow up like a balloon that you've stomped so mm -hmm. that... Um, you know the word artificial intelligence. What if, or the name? What if you just said uh, extremely rapid computation or freedom? What if you uh, changed that to God knows what? Or uh, people say, oh, he's very unique, and you've right. got to understand that unique cannot take adjectives. So the, the, you get into English major um, um, hairspray right. about words. Um, <laughs> I would say. If you, but in terms of yourself, if going back, you're teleported yep, through the quantum mechanical wormholes. Going back, stands here. What do you say to him? 
don't worry too much about making mistakes. The mistakes will lead to later developments that are so cool that this play of title of Shakespeare's, All's Well That Ends Well, if it ends well, then the crap along the way was necessary. <laughs> so uh, don't, don't um, fret about um, mistakes. Uh, I often did that. Be those mistakes actually led me into the life I'm in. So, and I think maybe, you know, it's got to be a time of anxiety, climate anxiety, um, anxiety about uh, jobs and careers in a world in flux and a gig economy and everything's changing. And people who are 20 years old a day, their 50 years coming for them is going to be wild. Be easy to be anxious. Well, you just got to ride the wave and, and, you know, all's well that ends well. <laughs> Very well. From one great wordsmith to another, Stan, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time, your effort, your support of the Clark Center, and everything you do for UCSD and San Diego and the world at large for the Sierras, uh, which I know you love. Thank you for writing this love letter to them and uh, and your, your many works along the way. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Brian. It's a real pleasure. You know me. I love UCSD. I love Muir College. I love the Clark Center. I loved Clark. And so we are right on the same vibe with all this stuff. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you all. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Thanks for listening. Keep in touch and inspired by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you have a .edu domain, we'll send you an artifact older than the Earth, forged in the fire of an exploding star in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us blow past 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing by following, subscribing, and sharing. And remember, always be curious.